and shape of Lower Manhattan, which jutted into the Pacific from the base of the tallest sea cliffs in the world. It was, as Robert Louis Stevenson would write, a prison fortified by nature. Three sides of the peninsula were ringed by jagged lava rock, making landings impossible, and the fourth rose as a 2,000-foot wall, so sheer that wild goats tumbled from its face. In the early days of the colony, the government provided virtually no medical care, a bare subsistence of food, and only crude shelter. The patients were judged to be civilly dead, their spouses granted summary divorces, and their wills executed as if they were already in the grave. Soon thousands were in exile, and life within this lawless penitentiary came to resemble that aboard a crowded raft in the aftermath of a shipwreck, with epic battles erupting over food, water, blankets, and women. As news of the abject misery spread, others with the disease hid in terror from the government's bounty hunters, or violently resisted exile, murdering doctors, sheriffs, and soldiers who conspired to send them away. Some already banished tried to escape, only to fall from the cliff or get swept out to sea. The pit of hell, Jack London wrote as he undertook a tour of the colony, the most cursed place on earth. The mortality rate for patients in the first five years of exile was a staggering 46%. Leprosy is not a fatal disease, neither is it highly infectious. It is a chronic illness caused by a bacterium and communicable only to persons with a genetic susceptibility, less than 5% of the population. Transmission takes place much as it does with tuberculosis, through airborne particles expelled by someone with leprosy in an active state. Among untreated patients, only a minority have the disease in its active state. The majority are not contagious. For cases that are active, a multi-drug therapy has been developed that quickly renders their leprosy non-communicable, after which they pose no risk of infection and are, in essence, cured. Every city in America has such cases. In the New York metropolitan area, for instance, more than a thousand people have or have had the disease. There are currently 11 federally funded outpatient clinics in the United States treating approximately 7,000 patients, although health officials believe many sufferers go untreated because of the powerful stigma attached to the disease. Though modern medicine has stripped the illness of its horrors, on a social level, leprosy remains among the most feared of all diseases, since untreated leprosy can result in deformity. Its precise mode of transmission was until recently unknown, and a cure remained undiscovered for thousands of years. The greatest factor in the stigmatization, however, was the historical intertwining of leprosy with religious notions of divine punishment, which gave rise to the corrosive idea that victims of the disease were sinful, shameful, and unclean. The preferred method of dealing with such people was obvious, banishment. At its height in 1890, the population in the Molokai colony reached 1,174, and it was arguably the most famous small community in the world. The colony commanded intense scrutiny in the American press and became the subject of presidential inquiries, heated congressional debate, and irrational public fear. Segregation laws gave the local government the right to arrest and imprison any person suspected of having the disease, regardless of nationality, 
and the roles soon included not only Hawaiians and Americans, but also individuals from Britain, France, Germany, Japan, Russia, Spain, Sweden, Portugal, and China. Correspondents came from all over the globe, seeking scenes of thrilling grotesquerie. Physicians and scientists entered, some to offer help, others to indulge their own ambitions, an ethically suspect pursuit that led to one of the 19th century's most notorious episodes of human experimentation. Famous authors also secured a visiting pass. Stevenson spent seven days in the colony. London stayed six. He returns and sits by his lamp, and the crowding experiences besiege his memory. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote of the typical visitor, Sights of pain in a land of disease and disfigurement, bright examples of fortitude and kindness, moral beauty, physical horror, intimately knit. As the place grew infamous, celebrity sightseers flocked to it, among them Edward G. Robinson, John Wayne, and Shirley Temple, although she lasted only several hours. Other visitors stayed years, and the stories of their self-sacrifice transformed them into worldwide figures. One was a bull-headed young Belgian priest who fell victim to the disease and in so doing secured sainthood. Another was a fallen Civil War hero seeking atonement for his dissolute past. Yet another was a modest, well-meaning nun from New York who arrived to lend aid and quickly found herself the unwilling object of a most unlikely romantic obsession. The most affecting stories, however, belonged to the exiles themselves. Many had been mistakenly diagnosed and spent decades locked away before the error came to light. Thousands were needlessly isolated, their leprosy of a form that did not pose a danger to others. Some exiles were sent away as young children and suffered 60 and even 70 years in isolation before becoming free. Banishment continued well into the modern age. Even as man ventured into space and prepared to walk on the moon, the government kept watch over the colony of exiles, still imprisoned by ancient fears. Their struggle to maintain faith form a loving community, and help one another stay alive is one of the most extraordinary acts of enduring heroism in American history. Twenty-eight people remain in the community, passing quiet days in cottages at the base of the cliff. A few hundred yards from their simple homes is the spot where the first twelve exiles straggled to shore, cast away on the morning of January 6, 1866. Within three years, all but two were dead. Their swift demise was expected. It was a key component of the segregation plan. But in time, the exiles began to defy the policy and accomplished something profoundly stirring and remarkable. They survived. One final note. This is a work of nonfiction. It is based on more than 8,000 pages of documents, including news accounts, medical records, congressional transcripts, government publications, personal letters, memoirs, interviews, and observations. Anything between quotation marks is taken directly from these sources, and the thoughts and feelings of characters as described in the narrative arise from the same material. No names have been changed. Today, the terms leper and even leprosy are considered objectionable. As the chronology of the book progresses, all terminology is kept appropriate to its time. And thus, when the word leper appears, I have used it in historical context or as part of a direct quote. 
An alternative modern term for the condition is Hansen's disease, named after the Norwegian bacteriologist who first identified the germ that causes leprosy. The medical community is split on the adoption of the term, however, and some physicians and patients prefer the older name. For the sake of clarity, I refer to the disease as leprosy throughout the book. Part 1 Chapter 1 Run Population 1143 By 9.30 in the evening on the final Tuesday in June 1893, Deputy Sheriff Louis Stoltz had one fugitive in chains. He pulled his prisoner along a twisty shoulder of valley, the path lit by an almost full moon, until he reached a meadow studded with volcanic rock. At the field's far edge sat a white wooden cottage with one dark window on each side. Two men hid inside. A young Hawaiian named Kalua i Kuulau, known as Kuulau, crouched with his wife behind a boulder several yards from the cottage porch. I hear something, Kuulau whispered to his wife Pi'ilani. They pressed into the stone, still warm from the sun. Across the meadow floated the sound of dragged links of iron. Kuulau nodded toward the path. There are two of them, he told his wife. Have courage. We may be going to die. Just then the cottage door burst open and two forms streaked through the night. One man, a Hawaiian named Kala, sprinted toward Deputy Stoltz. You stand still, Stoltz shouted. He raised a rifle. You take care. Stop now. Pi'ilani felt her husband shift and then stand. Kuulau started toward the deputy. A crude triangle formed in the moonlight. Louis Stoltz with his weapon trained on the unarmed Kala and Kuulau standing between the two.